0: Welcome back to part 2 of Road to Freedom. In part 1, we took a brief look at the history of North Korea, the kind of life Park Yeong-mi had during her 13 years in North Korea, and also some more facts about the regime. Please do note that my main source of information is from her memoir, In Order to Live. Many other sources used are to explain the historical context, other people's struggles and views, and maybe some critique and commentary. If you ever do get the chance, though, I highly recommend reading her book. Again, I cannot guarantee that everything in there is 100% pure facts, and maybe some parts were misremembered bits and pieces, but I would try to focus on the bigger picture. We're humans and we have different experiences, memories, and interpretations from each other. Totally normal. In the end, regardless of how many parts may seem inconsistent or unbelievable to you, it doesn't magically make north korea the most popular country in the world so on that note let's begin from where we left off when yumi and her mother decided to leave north korea only days after her older sister unmi left as well the town yumi lived in was called hesan and it was right along the yellow river and also directly across the chinese town called changbai although changbai is a chinese town It is known to have many ethnically Korean people living there. The town is also known as Tangbai Korean Autonomous County, and it makes sense since it is located so close to North Korea, and there are many towns and locations in northern China that have a large population of ethnically Korean people. The width of the Yalu River ranges from around 460 to 800 feet, or 140 to 250 meters and depth-wise, it can range from around 3 to 4.5 feet, or 1 meter to 1.4 meters. Some parts are deeper, and the shallow and narrow part of the river just happened to be around Heesan. Technically, none of that really matters, because it was winter, so the whole entire lake was pretty much frozen over. But of course, just because it's relatively more narrow, doesn't mean crossing the border is an easy task. Guards are always posted along the borders, especially since it is quite common for North Koreans to cross via the Chinese border. Well, how does it work then? You have to know the right people and have money. In a world of favors and help, money is usually the way to go. The two met their smuggler guides, received some dark thin clothing to change into, and the four of them were on their way. The smugglers told Yummy and her mother that they had to lie about their age and their relationship, because most times Chinese smugglers refuse to take in anyone too old or too young. I think this preference for a young women is quite telling as to what will happen once they arrive in China. They eventually arrived at a shack and were met by a Chinese broker, whom Yummy recalls was fat and bald. The first traumatic incident occurred right then and there. Yummi was 13, still young, and most likely unaware of the dangers people can pose. Sure, she was fully aware of terrible living conditions, death, and that sort, but her life consisted of generally nice people so far, and she would never have expected something like this to happen. The bald broker took Yeonmi's mother aside, and after some back and forth and some noises, she returned to Yeonmi. She could tell that something wasn't right, but at that time she didn't understand and her mother didn't tell her till later. Basically, the bald man wanted to rape Yummy. He was initially told that she was 18, and maybe because it was dark, he couldn't really tell she was actually a lot younger. I mean, I don't care if she's 18, 50, or even 100, this shouldn't be a thing. It's disgusting and wrong on all levels. Yeonmi's mother couldn't let the man know they were actually a mother-daughter duo, and that Yeonmi was actually only 13. This could risk having them both turned back to North Korea. In the end, she told the man if he wanted to, he could rape her instead. And being the fucking disgusting person that he is, he took the deal. What a way to start your journey into a new territory. Yeonmi and her mother got into the broker's car and eventually arrived at his apartment in the town of Changbai. This was when the broker took a good look at them and realized they were definitely not 18 and 20 years old. The broker's wife, yes, he has a wife, then proceeded to tell Yeonmi and her mother the real deal. In order to arrive and live a North Korean free life in China, you had to be sold into a family for marriage. This was a shock to them, and not really their fault either. They had no way of knowing what the world outside was like, and they had probably heard stories from others about being able to live a free life, a successful life. Also, none of the other smugglers cared to mention the terms and conditions of their future life. They didn't know it was basically human trafficking. I mean, they probably didn't even know what human trafficking was until then. So why is bride selling and buying a thing, especially in China? Remember what I said in previous episodes about China's fixation with male babies and the problem with the one-child policy? You eventually end up with a population that has too many men, so when there's a demand, someone will come up with a way to profit from it. There are various ways people have trafficked people, and in this case, they use the fact that These women voluntarily leave North Korea. So it's not like they're kidnapping these women and girls, right? Doesn't make it right, though, as these women are incredibly vulnerable and afraid. They know most of these women don't really have a choice. Go back to a life of no hope, and maybe face punishment, or keep pushing through and hope for the best. It's probably hard for us to imagine, unless we've been in a permanent and miserable situation like these people have. So since these women quote-unquote volunteer to get sold into marriages, there's going to be a lot of price negotiation and seeking out potential buyers. Mi and her mother had to sit and listen to the fat broker discuss prices with another even fatter broker named Zifang. They eventually agreed on the price, and the fatter broker, Zifang took the mother and daughter with him. He told them he had to sell them separately because selling them as a pack would decrease his earnings. He knew Mi was only 13 at this point and told her mother that since she was so young, he would not sell her till she was older. He and his partner wife would then raise her in the meantime. At this point, though, it all sounded so sketchy and dangerous. But what other choice did they have? You've come this far. It would feel irrational to give up. They all agreed to Zifang's propositions, and Yumi's mother was eventually sold to another bigger broker named Hongwei. Here's a bit of info about him as he will end up playing a huge part in Yumi's life during her time in China. He was a Chinese man, did not speak Korean, and only in his early 30s. He basically grew up in street gangs, but he was not just some punk. He had a mind for business, and by the time he was 15, he was running his own gang. He ended up switching over to the human trafficking business because it was very profitable at the time. He eventually sold Yumi's mother to a family of farmers for a whopping 2100 US dollars. A lot happened in the next few years, but let me try to give you the important bits. Yumi was young, so she was staying with Zifang and his partner, as he had initially proposed. But soon after her mother was gone, he tried to rape her. Yeah, we knew this was coming. She fought him off, and he knew that he couldn't physically hurt her because she was basically his merchandise. If she had bruises or was left hurt, it could affect his income. Bonus points too, since she was a virgin. He was so mad he decided to sell her anyway, dishonoring his promise. She was sent to the city of Cao Yang, where Hongwei lived, and from there he picked her up and took her shopping showing her a different Chinese city, and of course, she was mesmerized. He bought her many things. Things she needed, things she just wanted, and things she didn't even know existed. He made sure she was fed. It's only normal to let your guard down after receiving such kindness after so much misery, but we know better than that. He tried to rape Yumi as well, and the same thing happened again. She screamed bloody murder and fought like hell and he knew as well that he couldn't hurt her because she was a source of income. Yumi became so disillusioned with her life. She had such high hopes for a better life, and now that she was actually here, it was so different. She always had to be on high alert with these men. She also had to be careful so the Chinese officials didn't find her. Back in North Korea, life was tough, but at least she had her family with her. And now she was all alone in a foreign place with foreign people. Weeks later, when Hongwei tried to rape her again, she grabbed a knife and threatened to end her own life. It was clear to both of them that she would do it, and Hongwei panicked. He then promised her that he would get her father, her mother, and her sister to her if she would just be his wife. She thought for a second, and she knew that this was beyond her needs and her feelings. If agreeing to this meant she could help out her family, she would do it. And yes, She did agree to it eventually. I know, I know. All sorts of drama and fucked up shit. For sure, he was probably the kind of guy who was into young women and even teens. It's horrible, for sure. Not cool. Traumatic for yummy. This so called marriage was obviously unofficial, as she was an illegal immigrant with no papers or status. But still, he forced her to consummate their marriage when she was only thirteen and a half. Understandably, she was disgusted and traumatized. She hated this man so much she wanted to kill him, but she also knew he was her way out of this. Wei, though, did promise her to find her family and reunite them, so she did her best to keep it together and move on. Of course, nothing is that simple. He agreed to help reunite her family, but she also had to earn her place by helping him with his business, aka trafficking other North Koreans. Yumi was picking up Chinese pretty quickly, proving herself useful as a translator, and as a young girl, it was easier to gain the trust of other North Korean defectors. Hongwei soon delivered his first promise to Yumi and paid to buy her mother back from that former family. The two were ecstatic to be together again. Despite Hongwei's efforts to try and locate the older sister, Unmi. no one had heard of her, but they weren't giving up yet. When Yumi's mother began living with Hongwei and Yumi, she managed to inform him that her daughter was actually thirteen, not sixteen, like the broker Zifang had initially told him. He was supposedly surprised and even stated that if he had known she was that young, he would never have "quote unquote" slept with her. I don't know if I believe that. Thirteen and sixteen isn't a huge difference, and in any case, she was still too young for him—less than half his age. Yumi stated that her relationship with Hongwei was very complicated, and I can absolutely imagine why. On one hand, he is this monster that basically raped her and is using her for his business. But on the other hand, he has promised and is trying to deliver on said promise of reuniting her family. He was also said to have been generous and provided a decent life for them during their stay in China. He was even somewhat protective of her and it was clear that he had a soft spot for yummi. Mi. Could things have been way worse? Oh, for sure. But could it also have been better? Definitely. I don't believe this is one of those clear-cut black-and-white situations, and in Chinese, there's a saying that I find quite fitting for people like this, and here is my loosely translated version. The pitiful person must also have a reason to be despised. In other words, just because someone comes off sad and pitiful doesn't mean they don't contribute to their own state, and vice versa. Obviously, I'm not Team Hong Wei, but I just felt that it was necessary to give a clearer picture and that it wasn't as simple as we would like it to be. Between March and October of 2007, Yumi experienced so much uncertainty more than a normal person might experience during a lifetime. Her hopes for a better life were tossed aside, She had to see her mother sold to someone, she encountered many other women who were just like her being sold to prostitution rings or families, and she got sexually assaulted multiple times, and so on. On the other hand, though, she did get her mother back and was able to dress well and eat well. During these months, she learned about human trafficking, prostitution, brothels, and women who were forced to stay in the sex business because of drugs. On her 14th birthday of 2007, another one of her wish finally came true. Hongwei had used his money and influence to bring her father over to China. Smugglers and brokers were confused as to why Hongwei wanted to bring over an older guy who was sick and weak, and why he would bother paying for him. Well, I guess he made a promise and he wanted to keep his word to his child bride. When Yumi's father appeared, there were hugs and happy tears. Lots of catching up to do for sure. Hongwei bought all of their favorite foods and threw a feast for them. But due to Yumi's father being too sick and weak, he was barely able to eat much. After finding out about their situation with Hongwei, Yumi's father also developed very complicated feelings towards this man. He abused his daughter, turned her into someone he didn't recognize, but he also knew he probably saved her from a worse fate and he also kept his word by bringing them together. Yummy's father's condition worsened as the days went by, and soon enough, they knew they had to bring him to a hospital. The average clinic just wasn't equipped for this. It was dangerous as they were illegal immigrants, and if the government found them, they could get detained or deported. Both outcomes equally scary. Yummy pleaded with Hongwei to help her father get medical care, and he pulled some strings and got him into an operating room. Once that was over, the doctors told the family that there was nothing they could do. Her father had colon cancer, and it was at a very advanced stage. He had only months to live. Obviously, this was shocking and depressing for everyone. After all they went through, after finally arriving in China and reuniting as a family, he is diagnosed with terminal cancer. Life's not fair, you know. How do you not let things like this get you down? He passed away from his illness in January of 2008, and they took him to an obscure area where they cremated his body so Yumi could bury his ashes on a small mountain that overlooked a river down below. She marked a spot just in case, and years later, her mother would return to retrieve them. Life was in a sense better in China, but they were still not free, not like they imagined. Life got harder as the months went by because Chinese officials were sweeping rounds more diligently than before, trying to get rid of any or all illegal activities. Why so sudden? Well, the Beijing Summer Olympics were taking place in the summer of 2008, and they of course wanted China's image to be perfect. Hongwei was losing money, not just from his business, but also from gambling. He was no longer able to provide for Yummy and her mother like he did before. He was oftentimes drunk, got violent and mean, or would leave for days. Yumi again had to look out for herself and her mother, so she befriended another woman who was once a North Korean defector. She introduced Yumi to a very rich man who I believe ran several brothels. Just imagine a Hugh Hefner type of person, just not as old. He lived in an expensive apartment. Many young, beautiful women stayed in his apartment, and he wanted Yummy to join them. Long story short, she refused, and he ended up locking her up at his apartment, where it was filled with women and guards. The other women there could not understand why Yummy didn't want to stay, since they could live there, have fancy things, and feel safe. This is going to sound like movie level dramatic, but here goes. Technically speaking, Yummy was kidnapped and held hostage, just not in danger. Hongwei very likely came home one day and realized she was missing. He used all his contacts and eventually found her, tried to get her back, failed, and now you have two bad men mad at each other. Yummy, knowing who the lesser evil was, tricked her captor and returned to Hongwei who was said to have been very happy to see her, so happy that he cried. Yummy knew the situation was still bad, as in he was still running out of money and was losing power she decided that it was time for them to leave Hongwei and seek another life on their own. She returned many valuables that he had given her over the past year, thanked him, bid him farewell, and left with her mother. First, they arrived at the city of Shenyang, a city about 350 kilometers from Yang. They worked some weird jobs with other North Korean defector friends, and then they made their way to the city of Qingdao. There was a church there and apparently these missionaries, weren't just there to tell you about God. They were also there to help North Korean defectors get to South Korea, where they, for sure, would be free. It was a long, complicated, and windy road. Qingdao was a port city located across the Yellow Sea from South Korea. If you look on the map, it would make a lot of sense if they just jumped into a boat and made their way to South Korea, but of course, nothing is ever that simple. From Qingdao, the church would send the defectors to Beijing, and from there, they would have to head northwest towards Mongolia. They couldn't outright drive into Mongolia either. They would have to be dropped off somewhere discreet near the border and walk into Mongolia. If they were caught by Chinese officials, they were done You might wonder, why Mongolia? Well, it wasn't just Mongolia. A lot of people also managed to arrive somewhere in Southeast Asia, since since southern China borders a lot of these countries, and once you get out of China, you can get help from South Korean embassies. So, Mongolia it is. There were many other North Korean defectors at Qingdao, all waiting for their turn to travel to Mongolia. Once it was Yumi and her mother's turn, they traveled four long days to reach the Chinese border. It was a relatively smooth trip for them, though, as not every single group can get this lucky. Sometimes there were random checkpoints where officials might board the train or the bus and check everyone's IDs. Obviously, these defectors had no valid IDs, so that would be a huge problem. At last, Yami's group arrived at their destination and were let out of their vehicle. Now, all they had to do was walk across the Gobi Desert undetected, enter the Mongolian border, and seek help. Easy peasy. Surprisingly, though, Things went pretty smoothly for the group. I mean, as smooth as you would imagine. As in, they were undetected. They would occasionally get spooked by lights in the distance, but they always managed to stay out of sight. After a whole night of walking, they finally reached and entered Mongolia, where they were greeted by Mongolian troops who, at the time, seemed rather hostile. That day was March 4th, Yami's father's birthday. The Asian Madness Podcast is brought to you by EveryPlate, a super helpful service I never knew I needed. Let's just get to it. I really hate cooking. I do cook, but I hate it. I never know what to make, I am too lazy to look up ingredients and the recipes, and I'm even lazier to go shop for specific items. If I can eat takeout for the rest of my life, I probably would, but honestly, I don't have the funds for that. So what's a good compromise? Every plate is a very easy way to make food at home. Definitely more affordable than getting takeout or buying a ton of raw ingredients and not knowing what to do with it. How affordable, you ask? Every meal is about the price of a coffee, which isn't much since most of us don't think twice when purchasing a nice cup of coffee. Cooking doesn't take long either, maybe 30 minutes, and it saves you a trip of aimlessly roaming around supermarkets. There's also a variety of recipes to pick from every single week, and if you want to make small changes like swapping out the meat, the veggies, or even the sides, it's all doable. Every plate comes at a very reasonable price, but still nutritious and well-balanced. With services like Every Plate, I get to save time preparing meals, which leaves me more time to write and to record stuff. Try Every Plate now for just $1.99 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering the code MADNESS199. That's like $1.99 per meal. And if that isn't a steal, I don't know what is. Enter code MADNESS199 at everyplate.com to eat better and save more money and time. Not sure if you're like me and enjoy a game on your phone every once in a while, but if you're like me, listen up. I remember as a kid I used to download so many games on my PC, mostly mystery, hidden object games where you solve puzzles and sometimes solve a case. I know, Jessica is so wild and so cool. Maybe it's a true crime nerd in me, but it's definitely something related to that. Is that something you feel like you would enjoy? go ahead and check out June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game where you play as an amateur detective investigating mysteries. Basically, you get to pretend you're June Parker, a detective, on an exciting adventure looking for clues, and even though solving crimes should be stressful, this is actually quite relaxing in many ways. I get tired from writing my episodes from time to time, So June's Journey is always a good break from the horrors of real life. This game has over 30 million downloads, so I mean, the numbers do speak for itself. So if you're ready to awaken your inner detective, download June's Journey for free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. Definitely a great way to exercise your brain while you have fun and relax. So... "'Tis the season to be jolly and to, again, buy gifts for friends and family you care about. So let me tell you about a very useful product you or your loved ones might be interested in. You obviously want something useful and pretty, right? As an avid podcast listener, you need good earbuds. And in this day and age, we like them wireless. Raycon earbuds are seamless, comfy, noise-isolating, And it comes with three sound profiles for your different listening needs, whether it's for podcasts, rock music, instrumentals, or hip-hop and EDM. Not just that, it has an 8-hour playtime and a 32-hour battery life, so you don't have to panic over your earbuds dying every time you're out running errands or commuting. This has happened to me, and let's just say it makes your day quite a bit more sad and boring. I walk my dog every single day, and since she can't talk to me, I put on my Raycon earbuds to walk her, so the walks are more pleasant and stimulating. No offense to my dog, of course. She's great company, just not great at holding conversations. Go to buyraycon.com/madness today to unlock deals up to 20% off your Raycon order. But please hurry. This offer is available for a limited time only. And You don't want to miss it. That's buyraycon.com slash madness to unlock up to 20% off your Raycons. Buyraycon.com slash madness. Arriving in Mongolia did not guarantee immediate safety and freedom. They were questioned by Mongolian officers, searched extensively, and would spend nights at a dormitory-like room on the military base. Eventually, they were on their way to Ulaanbaatar, the capital city of Mongolia. No one was sure they would be able to get to their final destination, that being South Korea, or if they would get sent back to China, or worse, North Korea. They didn't speak the same language, officers were not the friendliest, and no one really knew what was going on. Weeks went by, and finally on April 20th, a South Korean diplomat picked up Yumi, her mother and six other defectors and took them to the airport. They were finally heading to South Korea. It was, of course, her first time on a plane, which must have been exciting and terrifying all at the same time. The flight was about three hours and a half, and if you expected them to be finally free, you were wrong. This was the final step, yes, but there was still a lot of work to do. This process was handled by the National Intelligence Service of South Korea, which is basically the Korean CIA. They were all taken for a physical examination, and once that was done, they would be taken to the National Intelligence Center for further questioning and examination. It seems reasonable that these people who went through such bullshit to be able to have a life now that they arrived in South Korea, right? Seems that way, but no, can't catch a break. There were several things that had to be done first. It was not unheard of for North Korean spies to pose as defectors in order to gain entry and citizenship, so it was important for officials to try and find out if you're a legit defector or a spy. Once that was done, everyone had to go through a series of questioning and interrogations. It was daunting for sure, because as a defector, how would you know what to say and how much to say? Lying isn't cool and probably might get you in trouble, but what if you unknowingly said something they didn't like? Sounds extremely stressful to me. It's almost like you're an innocent person getting grilled by the police. For a crime, and although you want to be honest and open, they can still somehow use what you said against you and turn you into the bad guy. Yumi's group was not the first group to arrive in South Korea, nor will her group be the last. There were hundreds there already, and eventually it was time for Yumi and her mother to move on to the next phase of their South Korean life, the Hanawon Resettlement Center. What is this center, you ask? How are we not done with official things yet? Well, imagine this. You are locked home for years and years since birth. You only learn about certain things, only things your parents want you to know. And sometimes what they teach you isn't even correct. You know nothing about the outside world, and that's generally okay with you, but only if you have no desire or plans to leave your house, your world. But what if one day your house is demolished, set on fire, or whatever else, destroyed? You are found alive, you have to leave your house now, you have no choice. You realize there are so many things out there that you've never heard of, places you've never been to. Food you've never even tasted. There is this thing called the internet, cell phones, movies. Food is actually a lot more diverse than what you've been fed all your life. This is probably an overload for all your senses and your mind. Are you expected to just go out and live a life like other people? I'm gonna say no. You will need time to adjust, time to learn things that can help you in your new life and maybe unlearn incorrect things that you've been taught over the years. Kind of reminds me of that movie Room, where this creepy guy locks up a woman and her kid in a shed. So what I'm trying to say is, this resettlement center is necessary for those who intend on living in not just South Korea, but a world outside of North Korea. Hanawon Resettlement Center was built in the year 1999 and it is located about an hour's drive from Seoul. North Korean defectors all end up at these centers after their run-through with the National Intelligence Service. Think of it as a summer camp kind of thing, where you go for three months and learn essential life skills that you've heard of, but have no idea how to even begin learning, let alone use them. These may include daily how-tos, such as using an ATM, how to use credit cards, how to get around on public transportation, how to use technology, etc. The language is generally the same, but because of the divide and how reclusive the North was, there are still many parts of the language that is different, or rather, evolved differently. There are many words and phrases missing in North Korea, such as expressing love between partners and friends. There are also newer terms that never made it to the North, for obvious reasons. The accent is apparently somewhat different as well, so a lot of people tried to fit in better by learning the accent. The center also offers trauma counseling because most people suffered some form of trauma, and they also provided re-education programs that tell the whole story about the North and the South, what democracy is, freedom of religion, and what activism and human rights are. May sound crazy to a lot of us since most of us have probably always known about these things since we were kids. We know what technology is and how to use it. We know how to use money. We know how to take any form of transportation. For them, though, it's like getting your entire world flipped upside down. All these things you once believed in are actually lies. And the outside world was definitely not worse than North Korea. Something many people struggle with is the guilt. The guilt of leaving their loved ones behind. The guilt of betraying their country. And the guilt of having to come to terms with the fact that the dear eternal leaders, the Kim family, are dictators. They are definitely not doing the best for their people. North Korea is not the best nation in the world like they claimed. The leaders are not starving like the rest. No offense, but we've seen pictures of these guys. Yummy's mother spent time with the other adults learning these adult life skills, and Yummy spent time with other younger kids. Testing their academic knowledge. She was 15, but she's had very little schooling throughout her life. Let's see. If you're 15, you should have about nine years of schooling, more or less. She had about a total of two years, which can be a big problem when it comes to enrolling in schools and attending college. We all know or have heard about how competitive and crazy schools and studying can get in some of these Asian countries so imagine the pressure to want to catch up. The kids learned English, learned world history, geography, everyday conversational and people skills. It was an important period for all defectors. These three months could end up dictating the rest of their lives. Yumi realized that she had more trouble with a few things specifically. One, she didn't know how to introduce herself. She wasn't used to thinking about herself, wasn't used to expressing herself honestly. Two, She had trouble with her newfound freedom of choice. In the North and even in China, she had to do what others told her to do. She wore what she had, not many choices. And she ate what they gave her, because again, not many choices. Suddenly she's overwhelmed with choices, and you know it's true. Having more choices can sometimes make things more difficult. I remember when I had to wear uniforms for school. I was so jealous of other schools that didn't require uniforms or they could, quote-unquote, express themselves. Then, when I started going to a school that didn't require uniforms, I was constantly bothered with what clothes I should wear. This shirt looks nice, but it makes me look fat. This shirt fits me, but it makes me look boring. Does it look like I'm trying too hard? Are these pants too baggy? All that unnecessary stress. And then I began to miss uniforms. I know, it's really annoying. After three months of intense learning and training, Yumi, her mother, and several others received their official papers. They were now citizens of South Korea. How exciting. How daunting and scary, too. You had the government help you out for three months, and now it's all up to you. The government, of course, provided everyone with a resettlement package, which is necessary for these new citizens to start their new lives. How else would they pay for rent and groceries? Yummy's mother began to take up different jobs, and Yummy began to attend school. But she did a lot of bouncing around. She attended Christian boarding schools on and off, mostly because it was more welcoming of North Korean defectors. The cons, though? It was too religious for her, and she also felt like the curriculum wasn't challenging enough. She wanted to learn more and learn fast. She spent most of her time reading, absorbing new information, and trying to get her equivalency degrees. After almost two years of intense studying and test-taking, Yumi managed to get her diplomas around April 2011, which equates to her having graduated high school. She began to apply for universities and eventually was accepted in a police administration program. She wanted to help others like herself, and she wanted to overcome her fear of police officers. To get over that fear, she decided to become one of them. That dream didn't really end up working out because of her declining health. She wasn't sick or anything, she was just stretching herself out too thin, not eating or sleeping properly. Aside from her schoolwork, she also began appearing on South Korean TV shows, which were more entertainment driven but also used to educate the public on North Korean defectors. Yumi participated in these shows. Because she still wanted to find her older sister, and it's been more than four years since she's seen her. She hoped that maybe her sister was alive somewhere and could maybe one day see this show and realize her family was looking for her. For the next couple of years, Yummy studied, took breaks from school, studied some more, went to the Philippines to study English, and traveled for Christian volunteer missions. As her volunteer mission was ending around November of 2013, She received a call from her mother right before Thanksgiving. It was a miracle. Her sister was alive and in South Korea. It was definitely something to be thankful for. Yumi hopped on the next flight back home, and her and her mother were allowed to go visit her sister at the resettlement center. It took a lot longer for Unmi to arrive in South Korea, and one reason was probably because she took the Southeast Asia route. I mean... It's a long way anyway, so it's really hard to say. She also told Yummy that she never saw any of the shows she was in, and she had no idea that they were still alive. It was truly a miracle. At around 2014, the North Korean regime began to gain attention from the public, but of course, not because they were spectacular. There were threats of nuclear bombs, and then the United Nations released a report on all the wrongdoings and cruel treatments the regime was doing to its citizens. This caused a sudden need for the media to find North Korean defectors who will talk about their lives. Gyomi was someone many reached out to, maybe because she had been on television, and maybe because she spoke some English. She had become a bit of a celebrity. She was interviewed by many foreign sources, and invited to be a speaker at all sorts of human rights events and conferences, including the One Young World Summit. Later that year, she began to work on her memoir, In Order to Live. She also moved to the United States in order to bring more awareness on topics like human trafficking and those suffering under the Kim government in North Korea. Despite her work, she continued to pursue her education. She was accepted into the Columbia University School of General Studies in 2016, where she majored in economics. She married an American man named Ezekiel in 2017. The two had a child together, but ended up divorcing in 2020. Okay, so that was the general crazy story of how a young girl managed to escape North Korea, the crazy things that happened during the two years she was in China, and her eventual life as a free woman. So I admit, her book was incredibly moving and I felt a ton of different emotions when I read it. Most parts made me appreciate my life more. Some parts made me really sad and other parts were quite bittersweet, like her relationship with her family and especially when she had that one boyfriend in North Korea who swore he would come back for her and marry her. As for this boy, his father, who was working in the government's agricultural department, was accused of being responsible for harvest failures in North Korea. He was sentenced and thrown into a political prison camp. No one knows what happened to the boy and his mother. They just vanished. Very scary. Now, I would like to talk about some of the critiques I've seen and some inconsistencies others have pointed out about her life. I personally don't take everything I read word for word, even though it's hard because Who am I to argue with someone's account when I have no first, second, or even third-hand experience? It's not that I don't believe her, I just know that our memories are not necessarily accurate. So remember, it's totally normal to not take everything word for word. In an article I found from The Diplomat, journalist Mary Ann Jolly points out some inconsistencies and questions she has in regards to Yummy's accounts. First of all, Yummy appeared in a few different TV shows in South Korea, one of them being now on my way to meet you. It seems that the stories Yummy told the public were very different in contrast to the stories told by other girls on the show. In short, Yummy gave off a very quote unquote rich vibe, and even Yummy herself found it strange when she was listening to other girls talk about their lives, as their experience in North Korea were so different from hers. So much worse. There were times she even thought these other girls were lying. Yummy's mother, who appeared on the show a few times with her daughter, was questioned on the tough life her daughter had talked about. And what did the mother say? She denied ever having been that poor, that, quote, We were not to that extent. We were just never in a position where we were starving, unquote. Many times after the show taping, Yumi would call her mother to share details and ask her questions. She apparently also had doubts about her memories, because she had to confirm with her mother. Another thing that was pointed out were the public executions Yumi supposedly witnessed. Many other defectors stated that public executions were actually banned after the year 2000, but Yumi allegedly remembers one from 2002. She also would give inconsistent details on why someone she knew got executed, which raised some eyebrows. I don't know, this can be classified as either misremembering facts or embellishing. Another common inconsistency is what happened to Yummy's father. In the book, she mentioned that she had not cremated and buried his ashes on top of a small mountain. But in other accounts, she had either not cremated him and buried him, or some of her distant relatives living in northern China came and buried her father. Which is it? Last one. Yummy had also talked about how during her time at the Mongolian detention center, she was forced to strip naked, which made her feel ashamed and angry. South Korean officials, though, denied this claim, as they constantly send officials to these detention centers to keep an eye on things. Make sure everyone's doing okay. None of these officials have ever heard anyone talk about these strippings. So, what's true? This is what I mean about the human memory not being as reliable as we think. Also, don't forget she was a young girl. She left North Korea at the age of 13, arrived in South Korea when she was only 15. Despite the terrible things she went through, she may have misremembered certain things or could have seen things differently, as in through the eyes of a child. Or maybe as a child, we don't tend to notice as much as we think we do. It's all completely possible. Not saying she's deliberately making stuff up. I do believe she did some fact checking with her mother as she was writing this book. But again, just because her mother was and is an adult, it doesn't mean she remembers things perfectly either. The number of North Korean defectors arriving in South Korea hit a new low last year. Only 229 defectors which could probably be because of COVID and border closures. In 2018, there was 1,117, and in 2019, it was a similar number, 1,047. Believe it or not, there are some North Koreans who left, arrived in South Korea, then returned to North Korea later because life was hard in South Korea. Might be hard to imagine, but I think this is entirely possible. Either they were tired of having to make so many choices every day, or they missed their family, or maybe, just maybe, it's North Korean propaganda. Apparently some of these people that returned to North Korea talk about how welcome they felt when they returned to North Korea. Wouldn't shock me if it was a tactic of theirs, since they tell civilians that their leaders are immortal, that every other country is evil and poor. That Kim Jong il invented the hamburger, and their life's purpose is to serve their country and leader. North Koreans rely on the ideology of self reliance, which can make sense, but over the years, it's been abused so much it no longer works. Nowadays, the whole self reliance ideology is used as a way to respect and worship your dear leaders, since he is supposedly so uniquely gifted, so incredibly accomplished that the only way to make one's life better was to align your own will with that of the leader's, Basically, work hard for yourself and for your leader, because he is so wonderful. So there you have it, the very eventful and harrowing tale of a young girl's life in North Korea, her escape, and her eventual freedom. I honestly thought I was able to fit this into one episode. How silly and naive of me. I really could have gone on and on, but I had to stop. I really didn't want to stretch this topic out into a three-parter. So, you get two. If this topic interests you, I highly encourage you to read Park Young-mi's book, and maybe watch some documentaries. It's definitely an interesting topic and an ongoing situation. Will the two Koreas ever reunite? Will the Northern regime ever crumble? Will there be another war between the two? What are your thoughts? How do you feel about this whole situation? Or about Yummy's life? Do you think there was a lot of embellishment or exaggeration? You already know how I feel, so I won't repeat myself. And this episode's already long enough, so I'm going to stop talking. Thanks again for tuning in to this two-parter episode. Maybe one day in the future, but not too soon, I'll do another episode on the weird and horrible things in North Korea. God knows there's way more to talk about. Please take care, be kind, and stay safe. Till next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness Podcast. If you enjoyed my content, please rate and review me on iTunes. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com.